everybody, and welcome to another episode of DevStalking. Um, we've got a really interesting uh, show for you tonight about testing. Uh, it's a, it's certainly a topic that that all of us on here have spent a lot of time and energy thinking about and talking about and discussing, debating, practicing, learning, failing, and succeeding at. Uh, so I think we've got uh, we've got four topics that we're going to cover tonight um, that are going to include what should we test or should we not test. Um, we're going to talk a little bit about test-driven development, which is something that we've all spent uh, some time on and have uh very strong opinions on uh, in a couple different directions. Uh, we're going to talk a little bit about browser-based testing, um, what what our experiences have been uh, with browser-based testing and and what we recommend and, and why. And then uh, we're going to talk a little bit about uh, what tests we should run in your CI CD pipeline and what impact those tests should have on your build status and, and what your reaction to those tests should be. Uh, so um, with me today, uh, are the Jameses as usual, James Thomas. Hey. Hi, James. And uh, James Spargo. Hi there. How are y'all? Hello. And also today is uh, is a new voice is David Nelson. Uh, David's another colleague of ours, and uh, I'll give him a couple minutes to introduce himself, let you guys know who he is. Sure. So uh, this, is, uh, this is David. Um, I am uh, currently a uh, traveling software consultant. Uh, I am... Uh, very heavily into uh, .NET and uh, the whole .NET ecosystem, but being a consultant has also given me exposure to uh, a lot of other things, which um, has given me a lot of uh, interesting perspectives that maybe I can share at some point if uh, the talk of .NET doesn't scare Spargo away. Uh, and uh, I definitely am I'm very big into testing. I'm big on developers testing and, and doing testing the right way, so I'm very interested in our conversation tonight. All right. Well, thank you very much, David, and welcome uh, to Devs Talking. Uh, so let's uh, let's dive right in. Um, and and I think really the the appropriate place to start with this is to sort of set some context around um, what we're talking about with testing, and then I'll I'll, I'll go around and we can talk about. Um, what we should test. When we're talking about testing in the context of software here, we're primarily talking about automated testing, um, though I, I consider uh, some degree of manual testing or exploratory testing to be extremely valuable and valid. Uh, but what we're mostly talking about is, is automated testing and how we're using that to uh, improve the quality of our software in, an, in a couple of different dimensions of you know both uh, getting software out bug free, but also driving good design um, and some of the other illities, and and we'll we'll get into we'll get into that as we go along. But sort of kicking off the topic, how about uh, Mr. Spargo? What's your opinion on things that should be tested, and and maybe some things that should not be tested? All of them. All of them. Everything. Well, yeah. Um, so, all right. Uh, to, I, I guess to be a little short about it, um, test the things that you care about. Um, and, and test the things that are easy to, uh, um, especially, pardon me, test the things that are easy to change. You should also test the things that are hard to change, but that's a whole different, um, topic. Uh, some of the things that, that are, are difficult to change or that, that kind of, <clears throat> or at least in my opinion, uh, that probably shouldn't be tested are things along the lines of like styling, um, and colors and things of that nature. I think there, there is some degree of testing that you can do with styling and whatnot. 
but I, I kind of think those can get handled at, at like the functional level. Um, but I, I want to test all the things. Um, I definitely, uh, uh, I, I definitely, if, if I see any kind of logic, like an if, a while, a four, or whatever like that, then by all means, put a test on it. Uh, however, I, I tend to waffle on procedural do A, do B, do C. I tend to waffle on those. Um, sometimes I find value in them, sometimes I don't. It really depends on the context. But even if you can't, um, even even if you can't test those things at a unit level, I think at the very least you should be testing that at a higher level, such as like a, an integration or a functional test that could actually capture those. And I think actually testing those at a higher level is just as valuable, mainly because like your program's not going to function with without those pieces of things. Does that answer your question? Yeah, I think so. So so David. Um James introduced a couple of terms in there that that are often used and often used wrong, and I know you have uh, uh, you have expressed opinions on this before. So can you sort of break it down for us? What is what's a unit test, um, and maybe what's an integration test and a functional test? And please don't say things that test units, integrations, or functions. <laughs> uh, define them without using the labels. No, no, I can't. Um, Yes, I will. I will try, and then I will tell you why I think I can't. Roughly, the idea of a unit test is testing the smallest thing that you can. That may be at a method level. It may be at a class level. If you keep small classes, it may be a good idea. Um, it may be bigger than the class level, depending on on your context. Um, but generally, it's it's test the smallest thing that you possibly can to keep the test close to the code. Uh, the reason for that being the more code that is under test, the more likely the test will break for a reason that you didn't actually care about in the context of that particular test. Um, higher than that, you get to integration tests, although uh, sometimes there's a, a layer in there called a, a component test, which is sort of multiple units working together, but still within the bounds of a single application. Some people call that an integration test, some people don't. Um, I like the component test just because um, it distinguishes from integration test, which is often used uh, in the context of crossing application boundaries or crossing to quote-unquote external dependencies, which may be the file system, it may be the network, it may be a database, um, it can even be you know, a UI uh, you know, to the monitor. It can be an external dependency, depending on, on what kind of application you're using. Um, so, but the idea there is, is, okay, we've tested the logic of our application, how it flows uh, at a lower level, at the unit test level, or maybe the component level. We still need to actually test that the whole thing together actually works. That's kind of the idea of an integration test. Um, functional tests are, I think, a little misnamed, but the way they're generally used is something that that tests from the perspective of the user, whoever the user is. So if it's in a web application, you uh, pull up a browser and you actually go to your application URL and you click through it the way a user would. And that's generally described as a, as a functional test. There's some overlap there with the concept of acceptance tests, um, although uh, they can have different focuses. But that's generally the idea. And those, all, those things kind of stack all together in what we generally refer to as the test pyramid, where you have unit tests on the bottom and then it's more integration component tests and then functional tests and then maybe some manual sprinkled on top. Um, and it's a pyramid because the higher up that pyramid you go, the fewer them, of them you should have. Unit tests um, are small and fast and easy to run, and so we are okay having lots and lots of them. Uh, the higher up the pyramid you go, especially all the way up to functional and in-browser tests, are uh, slow and brittle and difficult to write and difficult to maintain, and so we don't like having too many of those because they often cause more trouble than, than they're worth. 
Okay. So a little follow-up, um, because this is a, a distinction that I think a lot of people get wrong. And, and most often I hear the word unit test. More, the most often wrong, you know, wrong use word that I hear is unit test referring to all sorts of things. So here's, here's the way I always, I ask this. Can I write an integration test or a functional test using JUnit slash NUnit? I'll be charitable to your .NET um, and call <laughs> yes. it end unit. Can you write an integration test in end unit? And conversely, is anything written in end unit by definition a unit test? No, it certainly is not. And that is a, a sort of unfortunate side effect of history of the way the, the whole um, X unit, although I can't even say X unit because X unit is, a, is its own project in the .NET world. But in the Java world, you use the term X unit to mean any of the many unit testing tools, most of which end with unit. Um, but the truth is they're not really unit testing tools. All they are is test frameworks um, that allow tests to be executed. They can execute any kind of tests. Um, and similarly, we have a, 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 since you bring up that, that distinction, one of the other uh, sort of misnomers you hear sometimes is, is Selenium test. It's a test driven by Selenium. It's not necessarily wrong, but the, point, the, the idea of, a, of Selenium, which is a, a, something we use to drive the browser, usually in a higher level functional or acceptance test, um, is a completely orthogonal concept from you know in unit J unit, which is a test framework which can do anything. It can run small unit tests, it can run integration tests, it can run contract tests, uh, or it can run UI tests. So, all right, James Thomas, going over to you. Here's another another sort of um, related question to what we should test. What do you think is the ideal code coverage percentage that your Cobertura or Cobertura-like code coverage tool should provide and why? Or is that even a valid question? I think it's a valid question. I mean, people definitely ask it. Um, I, I don't know that there's any one answer. Um, I think it largely depends on the kind of project you have, um, what your your stack is, what the, the, the intricacies of the language that you're using are, because... Um, this is something that I hadn't really actually thought about until last week when we were talking about this, this topic on, on my current team. And like I've always been of the opinion that 100% code coverage is not really what you should shoot for because oftentimes, depending on what language you're in, it'll cause you to have to write low-value tests, tests that don't really do anything but bump up your code coverage number, like writing tests that exercise your getters and setters. And so um, with my current project, we're writing it in Ruby, and we're writing something that's uh, overall fairly, fairly light, like not heavily OO, like we have classes, but like there's nothing, nothing too OO about what we're really doing. And so we're, we're not really using getters or setters. It's, it's, it's more procedural in nature with a light bit of class varnish on top of it. And so 100% code coverage is actually something that's doable without writing uh, tests that, that really aren't any good. So we're like, okay, well, why don't we just start from that point? And I said, um, okay, I'm, I'm willing to go with you on that, but you know, if, we, if we start having to write low-value tests, then we'll need to reevaluate this. And so far, that's, that's worked okay. So yeah, that's kind of my, my overall thought. I think that, that higher is generally better as long as you are not being forced into testing things that realistically don't need to be tested. I, I think you I think you raise an interesting point there that is often overlooked, which is the, the idea of, hey, there's going to be certain code that's just not going to be exercised, um, and that's okay because it's trivial or whatever. The truth is the code wouldn't be there if it weren't used for something. It's just very often that we don't need it in the context of the unit tests that we're writing, which actually sort of leads to the underlying problem, which is we usually only run code coverage on unit tests. We usually don't run it on higher level tests. 
So if you're, you know, if you have simple controllers, or you have classes with data getters and setters or whatever, they may not really be, you may not really need to exercise them in unit tests, but they're going to be executed somewhere. And if you ran coverage on your higher level tests, you'd, you'd almost certainly find that they're being used. Um, and that's something that I've actually been interested in sort of trying to develop a process for. Um, you get, you uh, folks all know Abby Bangzer, um, and we've had, we've had this conversation of it would really give teams a better overall view of sort of how their applications are, are covered if we could give a better view of the entire test suite and not just the unit tests. It just turns out that it's really easy to do on unit tests and not quite so easy to do at other, at other levels. Yeah, I think that's an I think that's a really excellent point and and that's something that I've thought a lot about too is that I, you know, I profess to a lot of people that uh we should, you know, we should trust the testing pyramid. So you should trust that, you know, if something's covered with a unit test and then there's an integration test that covers another piece of functionality that combined that's that's good and I think that, you know, using that code coverage metric as the as the impetus to write tests uh, leads people to write unit tests that really are more appropriately written at, at different levels. Yep. I, hold on. I, I, I kind of want to throw throw a monkey wrench in, in everything I've been hearing so far. Um, so I, I, I think we all, we're all aware that I'm, I'm a big fan of testing, um, and I do like the code coverage tools. Um, but do, do any of y'all think that the, that the code coverage tools might somehow give us some sort of false sense of security by implying that... Um, pieces of code are, are actually covered by tests and just because those pieces of code are, are actually being flexed in some unit tests doesn't necessarily mean that those tests won't still pass um, if, uh, if, if other tests, if, if some of that code gets removed. Well, so one thing that I have certainly seen, and, and this is again on, on teams that have had a code coverage requirement, in order to boost the coverage, what people have done is written tests that execute code paths without an assertion, right? So, so and, and, the, and the code coverage tools don't know for the logic of the test. They just know that, hey, this, this particular code path was executed in something in this, in this test suite. And so what I've really, what I've seen people do is be able to sort of cheat around that, that concept by putting together tests that aren't really tests. Um, so yeah, I think they definitely give a false sense of security uh, when you have undisciplined developers. Yeah, and to, to the same extent, like just like Kevin said, with, with if you have tests with few assertions, those tests aren't really giving you confidence. So if you're taking that approach, coverage can give you the same false sense of security that a green test run can if your tests are not actually valuable. I mean, you can have a you can have a huge test suite. It can all be green, and you may still be broken. I think we need to to move on. I think we should put a pin in that. This might be something that we come back into a future podcast. But I want to move on to sort of our next our next topic um, that we're going to talk about today, which is which is browser based testing. Um, Mr. Thomas, we haven't heard from you in a little bit. What uh what's your what's your sort of um, opinion on or experience with, or do you have a good story about browser based testing, and and uh, where do you stand on that these days? Yeah, so um, I uh, I have some experience with browser-based testing, um, particularly on a, a previous client that me and Mr. Nelson were on. And so I have a, a non-trivial amount of horror stories to share there. Um, but for me, like the 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 thing with browser-based testing that that I like is that I mean, like any functional test, it gives you the clearest picture as to whether or not your application can do what you think it should do when everything is all running together the way that it's supposed to be and as close to a production-like setting as you can typically get. Um, and so I love that aspect of it. It's just that there are there's a tendency, I think, 
for people to try and take every single manual test case that they have and automate it. And I think that's where the mistake lies because uh, like manual, manual testing, I think at its best is when you have the freedom to explore and poke around and try things that only uh, the human brain is capable of coming up with. When you have this, this simple script that the people have to follow every time that they're getting ready for release, I think that that is more of a problem if only because it's, it's, it's teaching your people to, to not so much to, to think and examine things and try different things, but just to follow a script and call it a day. And so when you have that kind of mindset and you have all these test plans and then your goal in trying to reduce your cycle time is to reduce your testing time, you're naturally going to think, okay, well, I have all these test cases, so let me just automate all of them. And then we'll be good, we'll click a button, it'll run all of our test cases, and then we can, um, we can be done with it. And the unfortunate problem is, is that you, you generally have a huge amount of overlap between a lot of these different test cases. Um, some of them are testing very uh, meaningless differences, like the difference between um, purchasing two things or two of the same item and the difference between purchasing four of the same item. Um, they generally don't have a functional difference to them in the end, uh, but you're still spending a lot of time writing those individual tests and keeping them up to date. Um, you know, like certainly you can counteract that a little bit with parameterizing those tests such that you're at least not duplicating code, but in the end you're still spending a lot of time running those tests that aren't really giving you a clear picture about how your application is actually running. So I'm more of a fan of having... Um, sort of user journey tests, which kind of go through the flow that an actual uh, customer of yours might execute. Like the key things that, that generally speaking, are the things that are, are actually making you money. Make sure the user can, can buy uh, certain things from you or um, you know, get refunds in a, in a painless manner so that you're not calling customer service. Like these things that, that impact you as a business. Make sure that those use cases are covered um, don't worry so much about doing uh, fringe and edge case testing at the functional level because that's, that's something that you can cover much more easily down in the unit or integration test level, which will run a lot faster. Yeah, and and I think that's a good. I think that's a really good point, and I want to I want to highlight it. There is is that trusting, right? That that sort of trust that if you have your your business logic well covered at the integration and the, the unit test level, you don't need to retest all of those kind of business cases and error cases yeah. and whether or not you can multiply and add to get your full you know order total. That doesn't need to be done at the browser, but at the browser you do need to make sure that you know, your your browser is talking to your API, which is talking to your database, which is talking to your authentication system, which is talking to your credit card processing system, and that your user will be able to complete a transaction. Definitely. Have you ever seen one of those comprehensive, you know, test all the things from the browser suites provide any value or ever run to completion without some kind of random error? Mm, not, not as such. Like, generally, <laughs> I... Because <laughs> those those sorts of tests are are also hard. Uh, I mean, if you're running it in a production like environment, like it's still not going to be production like you might run into issues with um, test data overlapping with the, with each other if you're not cleaning your your stuff up afterwards. Uh, so I have not found a perfect user journey functional uh, test style that I have liked. 
Um, I think that we've come close on a couple of projects that I've been on, but it, so for me, it mostly ties back to whether or not you consider um, tests that fail to be something that the team needs to stop what they're doing and fix. And frequently, because we convince ourselves that because these tests are naturally flaky because they're function-level tests, and because the infrastructure that underlies them is sometimes pretty flaky as well, that it's okay to, to let the tests go red, which then you know starts hiding legitimate failures. And then it kind of leads into sort of the sort of snowball where you just eventually don't care about them ever anymore. Yeah. So let's put a let's put a pin in the in the CI part because we want to I want to get to that in a minute. Um, going over to to, to David. Um, so one of the things that's sort of often associated with browser based tests is this notion of. Uh, Forgive me for using the term that that's commonly used, but but like BDD um, languages and toolkits, where where BDD is the um, behavior driven development, which which in in summary the tool sets are intended where you know you can write tests in natural language English style. Um, th- theoretically, they can be read, understood, and written by non technical people, and they're supposed to be sort of the 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 like you know panacea of of um, testing because you can now have your non-technical people specify the tests and then they run in a browser which they can watch run and they can verify and whatever um what what's your what sort of your opinion on on those and their value merits uh have you ever seen that work successfully first i think it is important to acknowledge that the term is unfortunate bdd as a style is not necessarily the same as the tools but unfortunately they've sort of become synonymous in terms of the tools i think in general they're solving the wrong problem uh, I don't think they're useless. I just generally think the value they provide um, is not is not enough to justify the additional complexity that they always come with. Um, you know, the, like you said, the value they're supposed to provide is um, non-technical people can write or at the very least read the details of the test and also see them happening. Um, the, a couple of issues there are um, one, there, there's sort of an implied lack of trust there. Um, and one of the things that we all have sort of preached at various times um, is, uh, you know, we, we talk about um, agile teams, we talk about, you know, self-organizing teams where everybody involved in the development process is working on the same team together on the same things at the same time. And everybody sees the progress and watches the, and, and, and can see the value flowing through together. And when you have that, the, the idea of sort of, well, this business person needs to sort of independently verify or independently be able to prove that this actually works. It just is not nearly as necessary. Um, it's much, it's much more often needed when you have development teams that are separated from, business or product people and and they don't trust the developers when they say they've done what they need to um the other the other side of that is you don't wait 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 let me just let me just interrupt you for a second sorry to interrupt but what you're saying is that the the confrontational quality <laughs> searching for bugs in the dev code model is not I'm the saying right maybe model? that's not the most productive or efficient we can be maybe there are better ways Maybe that's a maybe that's a topic for a future podcast. Co- cooperation <laughs> being better than confrontation. Okay, let's yeah, let, let's come back to that one. Um, the, the other issue though is you don't need uh, um, a, a BDD style tool that lets you literally write natural language to write readable tests, um, or for that matter, to write readable code. Uh, it, I mean, it is it is very often. 
um, when, you, when you talk about it, if you read Uncle Bob's Clean Code, especially, or, or other uh, authors talk about it, is um, we have lots of, we, you know, we have the ability to express ourselves in code in ways that while they may not grammatically be English, um, are very expressive and very easy for people to read if we choose to do that. Um, we can choose to uh, abstract concepts appropriately and name um, artifacts appropriately such that even non-technical people can sit down next to a dev and read and understand what's going on if we choose to do that. Far, far too often we choose not to or we really, really badly want to and then you know, things don't go quite according to plan. Um, if that's the case, and I think this is one of the really important things to understand, if you are having trouble writing your test in such a way that they can be abstracted and read by non-technical people, introducing a BDD tool on top of that is probably not going to help because the complexity and the, and the um, difficulty in naming and the difficulty in keeping concepts separate and all those things are going to creep into your BDD tests just as much as they did before you had a BDD tool. Yep. So, uh, Spargo, a question for you on this topic. Uh, we, we often have to support multiple browsers. Uh, what is that? What impact does that have? And, and what browser do you support? And do, you, do your application still support IE8? Uh, man, I, I think the only browser that should be supported is IE6. Oh, excellent. <laughs> no, 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 not really. I, I, I can't remember the last time I've, I've been on a project where we targeted IE anything. Um, we would, for the most part, try to make sure that it looked acceptable in IE. There were a couple of times when it was like, okay, so we have a significant user base in IE. We should probably make sure that that's, that's in our testing thing. But, um, but, but IE um, and now Edge uh, is, is really kind of an afterthought. And it's like, yeah, maybe if we'll get to it. Uh, a lot of projects will have a couple of browsers that we're targeting uh, but not, uh, but not a whole ton. Um, and it's usually so, some of the somewhat most related, uh, browsers, but ultimately I, I, I think really, I, I don't think there's a, like, a, a, a golden answer to that. I, I, I think before you write an application, I, I think you should take a look at your user base and try to figure out who, um, who, who, like what browsers your, your users are using if, if, you're, if you're rewriting an application or if you've already got a user base. Um, unfortunately, if you're writing a brand new application, you're not always going to have a user base to, to target. And in those cases, you're probably going to want to target some of the most popular browsers, which these days tend to be Chrome, Safari. Um, I, I can't really say if IE or Firefox, uh, it, which one is more used, because I know Firefox is falling out of favor of a lot of people these days. But then again, it, it also I, I'd say it also depends on the industry that you're looking at. Um, so, for example, I know that the, the legal and, and the financial industries, because they still rely heavily on Windows. Um, I mean, if those if that's your target, if that's your target demographic, then I mean, it, it's probably going to be pretty smart to actually target like Edge and Internet Explorer and, and the, the operating systems and, and the browsers that come on those operating systems. And I don't know why I'm saying operating systems, because really it's. It's, it's IE that comes with Windows, and it's those industries that, that are using Windows. Yeah. Um, and then there's other industries that are kind of going more, much more Mac. Um, and in those cases, you're going to get Safari. Um, and when you're, when, when you're, when you're doing mobile, uh, as, as big of an Android fanboy as I am, I mean, you'd be stupid to not, like, try to make sure that things work in, in Safari because, I mean, flat out... Uh, um, iPhone users uh, spend more money, and, and they're... Uh, 
I think Android numbers are still higher than 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 iPhone, but still, I, I think Safari numbers are are still, in spite of that fact, I think Safari numbers are still higher than than Chrome Chrome numbers. Now I say that without looking at actually without actually looking at any. Yeah, data, that's all right. But, we don't we don't um, have to base yeah. things on facts. Um, so <laughs> <laughs> it's 2016, man. Um, so. Y- y- yeah, you you bring you bring up mobile um, and and sort of tying it back to something that you said earlier uh, when we were first talking about what should and shouldn't you test and you said you know colors position you know screen position things like that really hard to test in an automated fashion if you're building a responsive application and responsiveness is one of your um, you know is one of your requirements from your business how do you tie that into your testing. Uh, is that something that should only be done, you know, through manual testing, or is that something you should try to somehow automate? What, where do you come down on that? So, like with with your responsive design and whatnot, um, I, I I think that I don't know, maybe maybe I wasn't clear earlier. Uh, so, I I think there are some styling things that you can test, um, such as position of elements um, and and things of that nature. Um, so, in in that sense, testing your responsive testing your responsive applications. Um, if you're using um, a browser testing tool and whatnot, you're going to expect an element to be in a certain position when when it clicked. Now, um, that, now that's in most cases. Now, I'm I'm not super crazy about the whole um, paradigm of hey, go find the element with this class name or whatnot because that element could be hidden where a user is not actually seeing it. Now, granted, sometimes that's harder harder or um, harder done than said, but. Um, uh, uh, but those things, um, those those are the kind of like styling and positioning things that should be tested. But I mean, it, it's kind of a, it's kind of a pain to test. Hey, is this red? Is this fire engine red, or is this burnt orange red? Which is that color? Anyway, but I mean, and and, and even then, um, there there's there's users out there that are colorblind. So what what looks really red to somebody else is going to look not really red to somebody to to another person. And I think it's those things that are that are. Like incredibly difficult to test, or incredibly difficult for an, an automated test uh, tool to test, and I, I think those are the kinds of things that are um, that are better left to like manual testing and 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 like actual exploratory testing and whatnot. Uh, because I mean, not only is it not only is it more difficult to test those in an automated fashion; those are things that you can test just by pulling up the, pulling up a page of your application and having a look. Um, and if something doesn't look right, you're going to catch it right off the bat. Whereas, whereas like with an automated tool, it's going to take you a really long time to write something that you can actually assert on with those things. Yeah, it turns out that like human, the human visual processor is is really good and efficient, but it's also we really haven't come up with a an a, a easy way to express that to a computer. So, so I think some things are still left left up to people. Okay, so I want to move on from from here to talk about um, something that we had started touching on is is how this relates to continuous integration CI and to some extent CD pipelines and specifically in terms of of what constitutes a good build and a bad build and. and I want to kick the topic off with a with a quick story of of a, a team I was on once. Um, it was a team where we had a we had a vast vast code base and an even more vast uh, browser based test suite with an incredible infrastructure behind it of mu- and multiple VMs. And this was this was kind of early in the VM days. We had a cluster sitting out there that would run like a gajillion browsers in parallel to fully test all of the business logic of this application on every check in. And as you could expect, 
Um, when you're talking about running, and this was literally like thousands of browser-based tests running on hundreds of parallel browsers, uh, there were frequently infrastructure problems. It was running on a on a test uh, a test instance of the the mainframe backend. It didn't always serve requests in time. Um, there were high internet latencies, et cetera, et cetera, and so. Um, it was not uncommon for about 20% of the tests to fail for some reason. We, so, so the rule on this project was all of those tests would run on every build and the build was not complete until all of them completed or passed or failed. And at the beginning, you know, a, a test would fail and, and someone would jump on it and, and check it. And if it failed for, you know, just a random timeout, we'd rerun it. And as the test suite grew and as the, as the, the system grew in complexity, it got harder and harder to do that. And eventually there came the day where everybody just said, oh, uh, forget it. The tests are red, um, but but it's fine. We're just you know it's just that it's just a functional test. But all the unit tests pass, so it's okay. And that led to test negligence, which led to more and more of the tests failing. Until one day, the manager of the project made a decree that 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 subversion. The, we put in a subversion uh, commit hook that said that no one could commit if the build was red. Um, and you had to you had to use a special keyword to commit, and the only thing you were allowed to commit was a fix to make the test pass. And and if you were the last one to check in, you were personally responsible for making sure all of your tests, all of the tests passed for your check-in and that you got a green build before you left. And what that basically resulted in, personally, I refused to check in code after 10 a.m. I just wouldn't do it because because if I checked in code at two in the afternoon and it took me six hours to resolve all of the random build failures because this test suite took an hour to run right before you could find out if it was going to pass or not, I, it could take six hours to resolve it and I would be the one holding the bag. So I just stopped checking code in. Um, so that sort of led me to, to start questioning what is really valuable in terms of, of CI. Um, and it, and it led me to a place where, uh, you know, in terms of that, that, that continuous integration is the, is the code base safe for people to continue working on? Should developers be able to pull the latest code and work on it? I have actually taken functional testing out of that in, in, my, in my view. Functional testing is no longer a component of, is this code base safe for people to pull the code and work on? And I have moved those functional tests even in the limited suites that I believe in, down the line in the continuous delivery pipeline so that the, the, the build quality is determined by the unit tests and integration tests. And then, it, then if that build passes, the world is okay for people to keep working. That build then gets put out into other systems and, and the functional tests run there. And if the functional tests fail in the downstream systems, it's worth investigating. Um, you know that that build can't make it to prod, but it's not a, everybody on the team stop, you can't work until this is resolved. Um, so that was a whole that was a whole bunch of a whole bunch of words and a lot of story and I know at least David you were around for uh, for for that that time as well so you know the pain of this. Um, what what do you guys think of 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 what, how that situation came to be and also my remedy to it? I would question: Is your remedy is your remedy restricted to scenarios where you're following a good test pyramid and you only have a small functional test suite? And 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 I ask because I, to I mean to some to some extent I agree with you, you know the purpose of 
the big red radiator that we like to put up is, hey, if the build is broken, it's gonna stop everybody from working, everybody's wasting time, it's something we need to get on immediately. If a particular functional test failed and that's not really stopping anybody from doing anything, maybe that doesn't need to stop the build. My only problem with that is if you are mostly relying on tests at the top of the pyramid to tell you whether your app is working, um, then it may not be safe to push those too far down the pipeline because it could be that all the unit tests pass and the functional test fails and that actually signals a, a failure that will, will block everybody because most of your, of your testing confidence is actually coming from that part of the suite. Yeah, I think that's a I think that's a good point. I think that, you know, so if 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 you were following following a truly ideal test pyramid where really the functional tests were serving as more of a, a system integration test, making sure that uh, the various components were configured correctly, that um, that maybe API contracts for third party APIs were were you know being met and everything like that. I would probably I would probably still push those out from the build because what the what those what those functional tests are really testing is are other components in the system behaving the way they're supposed to and they 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 tend still to when they fail it means that we need to go and like work with another team to resolve this difference but our core code base is is still working correctly I think in the situation that you brought um, where we have you know essentially too many functional tests or too much reliance on functional tests man that that's a tough one right because at the same I, um, on the one hand i don't want to stop the presses for for every failure in those because a good a good 80 percent of those are still environmental failures on the other hand you don't want to keep working on code that's in a bad state so i i would i would probably still push them out just because it's more efficient to keep devs working but also uh, make a concerted effort to reduce our, our reliance on that functional test suite yeah, hold on. So, so curious. Um, so, you guys keep talking about um, um, like put, either pushing the functional test suite out, or or maybe your functional tests are testing too much. But I, I seem to remember um, when I, when I was like heavily into infrastructure um, of of looking at a different solution, which no, I don't think anybody's touched on yet. Not, I, and I'm I'm pointing at maybe that uh, maybe it's the your your testing pipeline that's 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 causing the problem as as opposed to the actual test suite. Um, and by that, what I'm referring to is, uh, I think it was Facebook, but I'm not positive. Um, uh, they, they've got a, a, a massive test suite. However, their pipeline only runs as long as their longest running test. And the way that they're able to do that is by scaling out their, their, their test infrastructure and whatnot so that all their tests are running in parallel. Because a lot of those functional tests, um, especially if, you, if your functional tests are written well, and by well, I'm, I'm referring back to what, what James Thomas said earlier, is, is test your user journeys and things that your users are actually going to do. You've, you've got to do it in a, in a parallel fashion. Um, and, and, and I think the functional tests are, are, are perfect for being able to do that because your tests, I, I don't know, in my opinion, I, your, your tests should be independent of each other um, uh, for it to be considered one test. Uh, and I, I haven't heard anybody talk about that yet. I, I agree with the notion of parallelizing them. I think one of the challenges that that often we run into when we do that, and this is what we ran into on on the project I was describing, is um, that works as long as your backing as as long as all of the elements of your backing infrastructure in that test environment are capable of handling that load. And what what typically happens 
is, you know, and, and this was certainly an, an application that had to integrate with uh, a relatively legacy mainframe um, like ERP system. And we couldn't get a, a high performance instance of that, a, a prod level of performance instance of that. So what happened is when we parallelized the tests in order to make them run in a, in a, you know, at a speed that could satisfy a, a continuous integration type environment, we overloaded the we overloaded the back end, and um, and then the back end couldn't keep up, and most of the test failures were due to back end timeouts, right? And we couldn't scale the back end because it was a legacy component that that we that we couldn't you know we couldn't do anything about. It was too expensive to scale it. Um, so, you know, I think in a in a more modern application, you don't run into that problem. And Facebook would certainly should not have that kind of problem because they 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 have a fully scalable infrastructure. But sometimes you don't have that luxury. James brings up a really interesting point, which is so to to achieve something like you described, which is your your entire test suite only takes as long to run as your longest running test. That requires you to have a pretty smart test runner uh, that understands your test run history and how long tests usually take and can. Uh, not just parallelize them, but parallelize them in a way where short tests are, you know, sort of stacked together to add up to longer tests, et cetera. The truth is, most of our testing infrastructure that we typically use on projects is pretty dumb uh, and doesn't have nearly that level of intelligence or sophistication. And most of us, I think, in the middle of a project would generally say, hey, it's not worth investing in building that out. You know, places like Facebook or Google have, that have both the need and the time and the resources to do it, I, I, undoubtedly it's, it's worth it. But um, I, I think to some extent we have to acknowledge the constraints of reality. And, and, and along the same line, I just wanted to say, like, we've been talking about how these functional tests are unreliable because they test lots of things and lots of things may change or they run on real environments where we don't have control or, or you know, other teams are involved or things are changing. Um, I, I don't know that everybody necessarily always understands that, especially if they don't have, if they haven't been through that pain. Um, it, it's not necessarily obvious on the face of it that a Selenium-based browser test is going to be less reliable or more of a pain in the butt than than a unit test will be. Um, and so, it, like like James Thomas was referring to earlier, you know, a lot of a lot of people say, "Hey, I've got these existing manual." tests. I know I need to automate. I'm going to automate them through the browser. We get just as much value, but they can run faster. And this is all going to be great. And it's not till way farther down the line that they eventually realize the mess they've got themselves into. And at that point, it's difficult to get out of it. So I, I think, just think it's worth acknowledging. It does not matter how much effort you put into it. It is simply a, a function of the amount of different pieces that are involved that cause browser-based tests to be less reliable. And yeah, you can do a lot of work to make them more reliable, but they're never going to be as reliable as a unit test. And you just sort of have to acknowledge that going in and, and use that as motivation to keep, it, to keep that suite small and push as much of the testing as you can down. James Thomas, do you, have a, do you, do you want to weigh in on this one? Sure. Not on this um, specific topic right, that we're talking about right now, but I do kind of want to bring it back to what kicked off the discussion is, you know, like what constitutes a broken build. And I know we talked a little bit about how, you know, functional tests um, do their nature and the length of time that takes to run and their, and their flakiness sometimes are things that you don't want to block everybody on the team from doing work on. Um, my only um, addition there would be if, you're, if your build is telling you that something is definitely wrong, then you should definitely stop and fix it before you get too far away from the change that broke it. Because the further you get away from that context, the longer it is going to take you to, to, to fix the problem. Like it's, 
that that I think is is where I would I would kind of draw that line. Like in the case of of tests that are failing for sporadic reasons, the thing that I'm more uh, most interested in trying out these days is something I've read um, about. I think Google does it. I'm I'm not sure. Um, is that if you have these tests that are failing, uh, try and automatically rerun the test a time or two, and if you get different results, then that test is can, or classified as a flaky test. It is automatically quarantined, and then there's also a ticket that's issued in, in Jira or whatever their, their work tracking system is to go in and, and actually fix that test for good. And like I think that that's probably the best way to handle those kind of problems that I can think of right now. And I really hope that I get to try that out on a, on a future engagement because like that, that seems like the right mixture that uh, it both highlights the problem of a flaky code or flaky test code base. Uh, while also balancing the necessity of getting work done and making sure that you ideally improve your your flaky tests over time, so that's that's kind of where I'm I'm at uh, mentally on that issue right now. Yeah, that sounds like a, that's I haven't heard of that tool, but that sounds like a, an elegant solution. It's basically let computers do what they do best, which is which is what for some reason we choose to jump in at that point and be like, hey, I think I think I'm going to I'm going to run this test three times, and if it comes up with the same result, why not just let a computer do that and then tell you what the answer is? Um, and sort of bringing this back around, this is also why you know to to your point. Um, certainly if something is broken for real, yeah, you don't want to put off dealing with it. The more often we run things, the, the better we are. Um, but I, I like that idea of, of letting a computer, um, give us information on whether or not a test is flaky. I think that's cool. Um, okay. So, um, we're about out of time. Uh, this is, uh, this is certainly not the last time we're going to talk about testing. There are probably a thousand, um, little subtopics that popped into my head, uh, as, as we were going through this from, um, you know, the good, good use of mocking, bad use of mocking, um, through, you know, uh, some other kind of CI CD. And certainly we put a pin in some talks about, uh, monitoring and, and, uh, and productionalization and how that relates to, to automated testing. So I think this is something that we're gonna we're definitely gonna come back to and probably go deep on on a few of these topics um, in the future. But uh, I think this was a really good discussion um, for today. Uh, just uh, let's just go around the horn for a, a very very brief closing thought, James Spargo. Oh, uh, dude! If if your tests are broken, stop everything and fix them now, like five minutes ago. Don't make me chase you down. <laughs> Fair enough, and. David, David, David Nelson. Uh, here's a, here's a thought for a future podcast, which is, I think it's time to move beyond the test pyramid. Ooh, yeah, we'll, 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 we'll leave that to percolate in mystery. And, uh, James Thomas, closing thought from you. Oh, wow. How do you follow that? Um, yeah, I'll, <laughs> I'll just say, um, be thoughtful in the test cases that you're, that you're automating. Excellent. And uh, and for me, yeah, I'm gonna I'm gonna say, test test all the things except for the things that you shouldn't test, but include the things that you don't obviously think of to test, <laughs> and uh, and make sure that your that your customers are gonna stay happy because that's really what it's all about. Um, and with that, that's gonna wrap up another uh, edition of Dev Stalking. Thanks uh, everybody for for your contributions. It was a great conversation, and uh, we'll hear you all next time. <laughs>